1: Of spin. This is Amy Bird, and I'm here with my co-hosts Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. And today we are excited to interview Sean Morris. He is associate minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia, and he's also the academic dean of the Blue Ridge Institute of Theological Education, or Bright, for short. And that's what we want to talk to him about today. Um, How are you doing, Sean?
2: I'm doing really well, Amy. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Bright and just its whole genesis, how it was established?
2: Yeah, be glad to. Well, Bright began, I would say, in the fall of 2016 or so as a result of a number of prayer meetings, actually, amongst a number of different pastors and church leaders uh, here in the Roanoke Valley. And it became obvious to us in the course of those prayer meetings and and conversations we were having with one another and with our church members that we needed to do a better job of training up fellow workers in the area, fellow uh, educators, Christian educators, church officers, and ministry leaders and church leaders and that there wasn't really an opportunity short of moving out of the area, uprooting, and going off to a traditional seminary context. There wasn't really much of an option for folks who were craving or desiring uh, deeper biblical and theological training in order to serve their churches better. And that sort of lack in our area really began to burden us. Now, the roots of what we now call Bright actually go back to the 1970s. There was a predecessor organization in Roanoke called the Roanoke Institute for Biblical Studies, or RIBS for short. Uh, now, RIBS had in view more so training pastors, providing continuing education for pastors, and and so that's what that was back in the 70s. But it went by the wayside uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and so you know, fast forward now to about 2016 or so, and we began to detect the need not only for uh, ministerial or pastoral training or continuing education, but also a lot of the laity, a lot of the folks in the pews and the church members were coming to us saying, what can I do, or are there opportunities that are affordable and practical and accessible for me to have further biblical and theological training? And so we put our heads together, we prayed about it, we talked amongst it as uh, a whole host of pastors across the denominational spectrum in our area, and at least in, in our area, there are Lots of Reformed churches, but a lot of them are smaller uh, with a small staff. And so for any single one church to have to take on this responsibility by themselves would have felt incredibly overwhelming. But we thought if we can pool our resources and pool our energies and pool our finances and our staffing and do this together, we can accomplish a whole lot more together than any one singular church could separately. And so In the early spring of 2017, we formally incorporated the organization, launched the organization, and uh, by God's grace, uh, we had a great opening semester, fall semester 2017, and we just began our, at least as of what we're recording right now, we just began our spring semester 2018 last week, and we've been really excited and encouraged to see uh, how it's been going thus far. That's
3: great. Um, Sean, you know, you mentioned that it's a cooperative effort among various churches. What are the kind of, doctrinally speaking, the non-negotiables that you have in terms of the churches that participate?
2: Yeah, we are self-consciously creedal and confessional. Mm -hmm. So we have a a twofold distinction, I suppose. Our goal is to teach and welcome and mentor any Bible-believing Protestant that comes through our doors. Any Protestant is welcome. We want to serve all branches Mm -hmm. of Protestant Christianity as our students. But in order to be on our faculty or to be on our board, uh, one has to subscribe to one of the historic confessions of the church. And so whether that's the Westminster Confession of Faith for Presbyterians or uh, the Three Forms of Unity uh, for Reformed Brothers or the Savoy Declaration or the London Baptist Confession or the 39 Articles, if you're an Anglican, one must find a home in one of those confessions to which they can subscribe and, and be teaching and ministering and serving from that vantage point.
1: In the short time that you've had this launching, what kind of base of students are you noticing more people who want to be equipped better as elders in the church? Or are there a lot more lay people? Are, are there women going?
2: We've got a whole swath of representation amongst our student body, which has been so encouraging, and we've been so pleased to see. So we have young men who are considering the ministry, who are considering mm-hmm. wanting to serve as ordained pastors, but uh, because of a variety of life circumstances, they're not in a position where they can uproot their families or mm-hmm. or leave their full-time careers to go to a traditional seminary campus. There's folks who, for a variety of reasons, the, the financial burden of having to do that would be insurmountable, and so for them to have the local option of teaching and training and mentoring and, and education uh, while continuing to work in their current vocation and, and continue to serve and love their family while getting ongoing training, that has been uh, monumentally helpful for them. As they, it may take a longer time, it may take more years of study, and, and that's fine, and they're happy with that, but it's become much more doable for them to go about it this route than a traditional seminary route. We've also seen elders and deacons who've t- taken some of our classes, folks who've said, You know, I'm an officer in the church, but I've never really had the opportunity to sink my teeth into theological studies. And I feel a lack there in the way I, to serve the church. I want to study more. I want to learn some of the things my pastor had the opportunity to learn. I want to do some biblical studies. I, we've got deacons saying, I want to do covenant theology. I want to study this kind of thing. And this will help me in my understanding of the nature of the church and, and ministries of mercy and service. Amy, I suspect you'll be particularly pleased with this. We've had women Bible study leaders and small group leaders coming to mm-hmm. us and saying, I feel ill-equipped. In the position that I find myself, I feel ill-equipped to teach and lead, and I would love to have deeper theological and biblical training as I'm leading my women's group. Is there a place for me? Is there an opportunity to do that? Uh, And our answer has been, yes, these are exactly the kind of people we want to serve. It's been interesting, too, at least in our area, we find a number of pastors, not necessarily within our immediate Reformed churches, but in other Protestant churches, we find pastors who have been thrust into positions of leadership without any formal theological training. And they're leading well, they're leading faithfully, they're striving as hard as they can, and they're not in a position where they can leave the church to go off and do studies, they need to provide for their families, the church is dependent upon their leadership. But, you know, we had a conversation with a guy a number of months ago where he said, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, I'm tr- trying to prepare my sermon for Sunday, I've got this Bible passage open, I've got twelve different translations of this passage, None of them say the same thing, and I don't know how to translate it, and I don't know how to render this text. What do I do? So if, if we can provide an affordable, accessible opportunity for that kind of man to have deeper theological training that will bless his church and invest in his ministry, we think that's a wonderful thing, and we're so happy mm. to to get to do that.
4: So you're providing teaching of the languages as well?
2: We are. Our first round of biblical languages mm. we hope to offer this coming summer, both biblical Hebrew uh, and Greek, we we haven't offered it uh, yet this go round, but that is our game plan this coming summer, Lord willing.
3: Well, Sean, um, as long as we're on that topic, then what um, what have what have the semesters looked like so far? Who who has come and taught, and what have what have been the the subjects, and 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 uh, you know how many weeks? Give give folks kind of a flavor of what it's looked like.
2: Certainly, it's modeled around a, a traditional seminary curriculum. It's modeled around a traditional academic semester, so about thirteen or fourteen weeks meeting in the evenings, uh, after work, one or two nights a week, depending on the class, after working hours when folks are available, and hopefully at a time that suits them. Mm-hmm. And so for our first semester, we offered two initial courses. One was on covenant theology, and we were uh, so fortunate to have Dr. Duncan Rankin mm-hmm. teach that course for us. Dr. Rankin is a, is a friend of mine. Incidentally, he was one of my professors, one of my adjunct professors down at RTS Jackson uh, when I was a student there. And uh, Dr. Rankin recently moved to the area. He's honorably retired and he still teaches adjunct for uh, RTS and for Reformation Bible College. But we got in touch with him early on and and he was thrilled with what we were trying to do here and thrilled with the opportunity to help us out. So uh, it's wonderful to have a systematic theologian essentially write us a blank check with his time. And so it's wonderful to have him on our sort of makeshift faculty here. So we had Dr. Rankin teaching our covenant theology class that first semester. Very well attended, lots of students learning this content and learning this subject for the first time, so encouraging in that regard. And then on the other side of the building, we had another class offered, an exegesis class through the book of Philippians. And so we've had folks coming to us saying, I would love to have the tools by which I could do a deeper and better and more robust and thorough study of a book of the Bible, whether it's for preaching or Sunday school class or small group leadership. And so we had Reverend Randy Pizzino, one of our board members and a longtime pastor in the Roanoke area. He led a seminar course through the letter to the Philippians for the entire semester, going through the Greek, doing some real deep exegetical and theological work there. And and the students really seemed to enjoy that as well.
4: I was a student, overlapped as a student briefly with Duncan Rankin some 30 years ago in the city of Aberdeen. Man, I wish I could be retired now. So, if, if i make it to ever being honorably retired, that will be fantastic. Sean, uh, how do you balance the, or, or do you have thoughts on the traditional debate within theological education for pastors between the mentor model and the, the seminary model? What are your thoughts on, on that?
2: Well, it seems like there are obvious, like so many other things, there's advantages, there's pros and cons to both models. You know, I I was a seminarian. I attended Reformed Theological Seminary, the Jackson campus, uh, with the traditional model in that regard of full-time studies, deep and focused period of concentration over three or four years, and it was tremendously influential uh, on my life and ministry. I'm so thankful for it. There's so many Things that the Lord did in those years that were formative in terms of my own piety and devotion and theological understanding and shaping me for ministry and i wouldn 't trade it for anything it, it was it was absolutely wonderful on the other hand, when you look at church history and and Carl you you can help me out here you're a church historian I want to be a church historian hopefully someday and but so you can help me out in this regard but it seems to me that what we're doing here at Bright is historically similar to what was happening in the early days of the church, second century through the time of Augustine, in terms of there weren't formal schools that elders were sent off to necessarily, but those who were in the pastorate, elders or or bishops, had been educated. They would gather around them other young men that they would invest in and prepare them for ministry and teach them the doctrines of the faith and supervise them and offer them mentoring and training. And then at a point that was agreeable that when they seemed suited for ministry, they would be ordained and sent to go do the work they were called to. And though our model is not only or exclusively targeting men thinking about ministry, it seems to me that the model that we're doing is rather similar to that early church model of local context, taught by local pastors and and local teachers connected with several local churches that are hoping to influence and impact and mentor local people in the pews for the health of this uh, regional area's
4: church. Yeah, it's a good point. And yeah, I think that the history there is pretty sound. And I, I think a, we're living at a time when the model of theological education is going to come under some external pressure, I think. The issue of Title IX issues, sexual harassment issues attached to federal money, possibility of loss of, of tax exemptions local property taxes, or all kinds of things that could come into play to make traditional seminary education mm-hmm. either much more expensive, not viable, or force it to to morph into something slightly different. So I think it's good to have different models being presented of theological education at this point in order to stimulate us as to, to how to think. I was at a college last week, Liberal Arts College, giving a lecture to the board there about the future of education and raising the question of, is college education going to become non-viable? Do we have to look to the kind of underground models that have been developed uh, elsewhere in the world as a way of pursuing Christian education in the future? So to have an institute that is not following the traditional seminary path uh, is is an interesting and a very helpful phenomenon, I think, at this point.
3: Sean, I wonder, so let's say, A pastor is listening in on this and feels a burden to introduce this idea to his church, to some area pastors, to a presbytery, if he's Presbyterian. What would you counsel them to do, kind of as first steps in in moving towards something like this for their area?
2: Well, all I can do is give counsel based on what we did and what seemed to, to work well for us. And so the first step, of course, would be to absolutely dedicate a time with yourself, with your fellow elders, with fellow pastors and church leaders who may be interested in pursuing this, and pray about it for a good, long, hard while. Devote a season of prayer several months to asking the Lord's favor and direction on this endeavor. Secondly, have a specific vision or goal of what it is you're trying to accomplish in mind, and make that very clear from the outset. You know, we are not trying to be the next big thing in the Reformed world. We hope that our aspirations are humble. We hope that they're modest. Simply, we want to invest in the health of the church in our region for generations to come. We're not trying to be the next big university or seminary institution nationwide and make a name for ourselves. We think that's beyond what we're able to do and certainly beyond what we're striving to do. But we think that by combining efforts and talents and energies together and doing this collectively that we really can make an impact in the church locally and the church in our region. And so, you know, that we set out to do that. What are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to be you know, simply a parachurch organization that's a more beefed-up Sunday school? You know, no, we're not trying to do that. You know, are we trying to be competition for that wonderful seminary that's up the road in Philadelphia? No, we're not trying to do that. So what, it is, what is it that we are trying to do? And so we set that out and tried to establish that from the get-go. Thirdly, we I would want to suggest establishing clear definitions and delineations of where you're coming from theologically. Knowing North American evangelicalism as it is, Whatever that means exactly, it can be a very amorphous, nebulous thing that's hard to pin down and define. and so trying to just nail down one's identity and definition and parameters as an organization, say, this is where we're coming from theologically— this is where we're trying to minister to. This is what our approach is and how we're going to try to accomplish that. Carl, something you were, you were mentioning just a few minutes ago about the, the different models. I, I can't remember, it was, it was something you said. I can't remember if it was in, in an article or if it was in a podcast like this, but you said something to the effect of, you know, many times you speak to young seminarians and you ask them, which preacher has had the most impact upon your own spiritual life and, and thoughts of ministry? And you said nine times out of ten, it was always preacher who's, who's a very fine man, but one with whom he had no actual personal interaction or relationship. A well-known preacher that's highly respected and, and should be, but one whom he didn't actually know and therefore had no direct influence on his training for ministry. I think that that kind of concern is, is valid, and and of course, we're so grateful for so many uh, gifted men the Lord has raised up who are fine teachers and exposers of the Word and have edified us so greatly, But but here's an opportunity for students to come and and sit in in a classroom and be taught and educated and invested in by those who are their actual local pastors, or at least other pastors who are in town with whom they're going to have a relationship and an ongoing uh, mentoring and shepherding opportunity. And uh, we think there's just a lot to be said for that.
4: Yeah, that goes to class size. I think a lot of seminaries can have large class sizes, which make it very difficult to have personal interaction, even if somebody is in the same room. Uh, it's tough to engage and and have any sort of personal engagement with students but when, when you know, once the class is more than 30 35 it gets exponentially harder to have any real relationship with the student that you're trying to trying to teach
2: mhm and and that right there i think is is a key thing for what at least our organization is is striving after is a very intentional purposeful decision for in-person teaching and an in, in-classroom, in in-person classroom environment, we live in a, a, a day and age where there are so many wonderful online and, and digital resources available to us. For instance, I you know I teach from time to time at a small pastors' college in West Africa, and it amazes me that my students there are able to download almost instantly lectures and sermons from guys across the globe. Um, wonderful content that helps their ministry and that helps their education uh, phenomenally, but. The fact that I'm even there in person at the invitation and at the behest of Mm -hmm. uh, that West African church should say a great deal that there really is no substitute for the in-person tutelage uh, that simply can't be substituted by a digital screen or a lecture. One of our board members said something to the effect of, we enjoy these these online lectures, they can be so helpful, but man, it is so tempting to just hit the pause button uh, on that screen and walk away for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks and just interrupt it whenever you jolly well please. There's a lot to be said pedagogically. There's a lot to be said educationally for the in-person classroom experience and mentoring and tutelage that can come with that. Not only that, but there's a lot to be said for the community aspect of learning where you're, you're learning with a physical cohort or a physical collection of students in the classroom with you. You're, you're interacting with them. You're bantering back and forth. You're asking questions. You're gleaning their insights. You know, you might ask a question that seems silly to you, but a, a fellow student knows where you're coming from and and they can help you out there. And then the, the professor or the instructor can read your body language and better discern what it is you're asking and hopefully help answer you and guide you and steer you in a better direction. And that's just something you can't replicate in an online environment.
4: Embodiment is important. We were talking about that on an earlier podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of been a theme yeah. today.
4: Our bodies are an integral part of who we are as persons. That's right.
1: So um, since this is a, a sort of alternate form of education. What is it that you offer? Are you offering like certification that the classes are taken or are they working towards a degree? How is that set up?
2: Both of those options that you just mentioned are available to our students. So we're trying to be a resource Mm -hmm. for a whole host of variety of different folks. And being a, a small organization, Being a local organization, we have that degree of flexibility to sort of do that. So if a person wants the equivalent of a Master of Divinity degree because they're wanting to pursue formal ordained ministry in a formal church, and ecclesiastical environment, that's something they can pursue. They can Mm -hmm. do a full curriculum and earn the equivalent uh, of an MDiv. Or if a person is simply wanting to do further studies, but they, they want the kind of structure uh, that comes along with that. So doing the equivalent of a a master's program or a certification program, that's also something that they can pursue. Or, you know, if it's a church member that simply is a lifelong learner and enjoys studying and enjoys learning more, and, you know, they're not out to get a degree out of this, they're not out to get any sort of credentialing, but they would enjoy the opportunity, and they just want to audit some classes a couple times a year yeah. and sit in and benefit from it, they can do that, too.
1: I'm just thinking, too, of How I know that it is hard for pastors and elders to have the resources to kind of screen and better equip their Bible study teachers in their church, both for the men and women, and uh, just to be able to maybe even sponsor them to, Mm -hmm. to go and to... To know, okay, they're going to learn this, this, and this, some of these basics that I will know that they will have when they are completed with this course so that I know that they will be well-equipped as a Bible study teacher or small group leader in the church.
2: Well, well, that's exactly right. And in a number of our sister churches where, you know, small staff, solo pastor, small church, there are folks that need, or maybe they consciously want it or maybe they don't know that they need it, but they need deeper and more serious training before the pastor can sort of, and the elders can feel free to turn them loose. But that pastor, with all of his other day-to-day responsibilities that he's slogging through you know, week after week and caring for his family, he feels overwhelmed to try and provide all that himself. But if he's able to sort of outsource, if you will, to a third party that's trusted, that he works with, that he knows, and he knows the level and the quality of teaching and education that's going to be done, he can in good faith and good conscience uh, send his parishioner hopefully to one of our classes where they can get the t- teaching and the training that they need so that they will be better uh, mm-hmm. equipped to serve back in their local church context and so hopefully we're helping to share some of the load and some of the burden that local pastors are feeling
1: right and then maybe like a pastor in a situation like that could still take on that shepherding role with you know meeting with them bimonthly or something while they're going through the process and overseeing how they're doing with everything and um, being there pastorally for them through it, but also not having to do all the, the legwork that it's really necessary to help equip people better. And that's right.
2: That's right. That's absolutely right. And you know, what we try and do is, on the front end, when a student comes and they apply to study with us, we want to know, at least as best as they can tell on the front end, what it is that they're seeking to do, if it's you know full-time ministry or if it's something else. And that way, we can be in constant conversation with their home church leadership. And so, there, again, there's that educational, that professorial mentoring, but also that pastoral mentoring and shepherding that they're getting hopefully both sides of that exactly. And so we want to be in, in constant conversation with their pastor saying, here's how they're growing. Here's what they're learning. You yeah. should be aware of this. Here's how they're progressing. Or maybe here's some concerns we have. You need to be aware of that And because they're going to come to you with these questions and in your church. So we want to make you aware of, of that. So lots of communication and transparency, we hope, between our organization and our faculty, as well as the students' home church leadership.
4: Well, it's been great having you on as a guest, Sean. We You do have our sympathies because we know you serve in the same presbytery as Todd Pruitt, uh, pastor of a mega church in a <laughs> university, university town if we oh, if we forgot yeah. to mention that today um, but it's been great to have you on and talking about theological education and of course Presbyterianism has always had right at its heart of its vision for the ministry the notion of the educated pastor who's able to rightly divide the word of truth uh, handle theology competently and speak in an informed way to to the congregation, so it's great to be speaking to somebody who is committed to carrying that vision into the future.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a privilege. Um, as I said, the the church is in a in a, a strange position right now, and that's what our organization is hoping to do: is invest in and serve, and hopefully uh, build up and strengthen the life and the theological health of the local church.
4: Excellent. Well, if you're listening in today, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter for a chance to win a little book by a friend of this program, Kelly Kapik, a little book for new theologians, Why and How to Study Theology. It's a wonderful little book that will inspire you, fire your imagination for learning theology and for theological education. While you're at our website, please consider making a donation. We are a listener-supported podcast. In the meantime, we look forward to being with you next time. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Thanks for
0: listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Freshman dropout rates
2: are too high
0: student debt loads are too high. Students are making, uh, in some cases,
2: catastrophic mistakes in their college years that influence them for 15 years to come. And so just realizing how much was at stake, I wanted to help my students be successful and kind of driving at college was my attempt to basically have a chat with someone, basically telling them what I wish I had known when I was 18 years old.
0: That interview is next time. Join us then.
3: This is either going to be helpful or a total train wreck. Awesome. So
1: I think people think that before they push play every week. <laughs> <laughs>